Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa Mia's Emergency Room Podcast. This week, we're starting off with Chapter 3 of the book, Deadly Enemy: Our War Against Killer Germs. Chapter 3 is titled, White Coats and Worn Shoes. My name is Elsa, and here I have my co-host, Ria. Hi guys, so let's get started. So basically, um, this chapter revolved around two infectious diseases that Dr. Osterholm looked into. Um, the first half, or really three-fourths of the chapter, revolved around toxic shock syndrome, and then the last fourth revolved around Brainard's diarrhea. So, with tox- toxic shock syndrome, or TSS, this is what Dr. Osterholm spent the, I don't want to say maybe the majority of his work doing, but in the intro, he did mention how this seemed to be um, a very prominent part of his work. So, I mean, it also happened before the whole AIDS epidemic, and... Um, so the first thing he talks about is, you know, what exactly TSS presents as. So from 1978, the past three years behind that, um, he had been seeing a bunch of cases randomly of boys and girls ages 8 to 17 presenting with high fever, low blood pressure, rash, fatigue, and sometimes confusion. Uh, the first case he saw was a 15-year-old boy, and he was initially diagnosed with scarlet fever, but um, someone else at the pediatric infectious disease at Children's Hospital in Denver, Jim Todd, Dr. Jim Todd, he um, thought that, you know, it wasn't exactly scarlet fever. There was something else going on, something more severe. Uh, and then after looking at more cases, it was noted that the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus was detected in the patient's mucosal linings. So like in the throat and the mouth. But nothing could be isolated in the blood or the cerebrospinal fluid or the urine. So, you know, it was a little odd. They still didn't exactly know what was happening. Um, But, you know, they did suspect that definitely some toxin released by this bacteria was involved in this disease. Uh, And then after doing a lab analysis, they realized that it was, in fact, a toxin called enterotoxin type B. And I guess they found that in the blood samples, but that's a little odd. Okay, so yeah, what happened was they found the bacteria in the mucosal linings, but they found the actual toxin in the blood rather than finding the bacteria, I guess. Um, And yeah, this toxin was produced by the staph bacteria. And just as a side note here, um, we tend to think of bacteria as being, you know, it has a negative connotation. We think they're all dangerous, but really only a tiny percentage of them can cause disease. Most of them are actually helpful to us. And there are two ways specifically that bacteria end up being pathogenic or harmful to us. And one of the reasons is invasiveness, meaning that it can grow inside the host and cause issues like that. Um, and the other one is that the, the toxigenicity. So this is what we see here producing a toxin, which then ends up being harmful to us. And just as some other um, examples of this, there are two general types of toxins. You have endotoxin, which comes from the cells. And then, uh, well, basically the cell lyses, right? So it breaks and then it releases this toxin. Uh, It's called lipopolysaccharides or LPS. Um, You can see this in the Salmonella typhimerium bacteria. Uh, which causes fever, diarrhea, and vomiting, and this is commonly known as typhoid. Um, and then also you have exotoxins. So these are proteins that are secreted by bacteria, so they don't end up, 
they don't need to lice in order for the toxin to be released. And the main purpose of this is actually to keep other bacteria away from it. So it reduces competition. But, you know, it ends up harming us too sometimes. And really cool, I mean, I don't know if cool is the right word, but a cool example of this is Clostridium botulinum, which may sound familiar because this is Botox. And I'll say it again, Clostridium botulinum. I think I might have messed it up. But yeah, this is a neurotoxin that's found in Botox. And that's why Botox works, because it actually paralyzes, I believe, either the nerves or the muscles, I can't remember, in your face. And uh, so then, you know, your face doesn't, like, make any um, changes, like, I guess, when you speak. So you're not exercising the muscles. You're not causing wrinkles to form. It also caused swelling or edema, as it's known in the medical terminology. Um, And so basically, this is because large volumes of fluid that are normally in the blood vessels and arteries leak into the patient's soft tissue. And this is actually what is the shock, uh, because there's inadequate fluid circulating in the arteries and veins, and it's very difficult to reverse. And then from this, you can go into multi-organ failure, and basically... This is because, you know, you can't really maintain blood pressure, so you're not getting oxygenated blood to the different organs, and then they can't function properly. Most of the cases were in teenage girls and women in their 20s, and they found that toxic shock syndrome was happening in menstruating girls, and of 12 girls that were observed, 11 of them had been on their cycle when the illness began. So then there were correlations seen, but a cause wasn't found. And so so a group of researchers and scientists started comprehensive questioning to learn about the relevant factors and identify controls in the participants. Um, and so after they found these controls in people who had the illness, they looked to interview people who didn't have the illness with the same controls to see what differences were in lifestyles or any factors that could explain why some people became ill and some people didn't. And from this, they discovered that uh, there was a statistically significant association between tampons and toxic shock syndrome. And so because of this, there was the effort named Tri-State Toxic Shock Syndrome Study. And their goal was to get to the bottom of why some people became severely ill uh, from toxic shock syndrome while using tampons. And so... They asked very personal questions to many teens, and uh, by September 19th, uh, the CDC published the results of the study they called CDC2 study, and this included 50 females, which had toxic shock syndrome cases, and 150 control. So there was a significant correlation uh, with tampons, especially the Procter & Gamble Rely brand. This was because women had been complaining that tampons were not observant enough. So Rely made these tampons specifically to be more observant and prevent leakage. So the tampon increased food capacity from five to tenfold, which got the attention of many of these women who had complaints. And as the study progressed, there was a relationship between tampon fluid capacity, which is observance, and toxic shock syndrome. It was surprising to hear that there was a 3.5 fold increase in the chance of developing TSS um, while using a tampon versus never using a tampon. 
And then also for those who use a high absorbency tampon, there was a 10.4 fold increase in developing TSS. And then with Rely specifically, uh, there was a 2.9 fold increase compared to users of other brands. Yeah, so then eventually they they thought, I think it was like the CDC or someone said how, you know, this just was an issue with Rely. Um, and so now we're going to remove Rely and then everything should be fine. But then basically it turned out that uh, Tampax tampons then ended up being the main issue or the main cause of toxic shock syndrome so it's just replace one um, culprit with another and so I guess I guess at that point they realized that oh okay maybe it wasn't just fair to call out this one brand we talked about Tampax and actually how the number of cases did not change much in fact they actually rose slightly so specifically what was going on was when these tampons were in use um, as it was absorbing a lot of fluid. It was displacing oxygen into the vagina, which normally should be an anaerobic or oxygen-free environment. Um, but with this oxygen there, it kind of acted as like, you could think of it as like food or nutrition for the bacteria. And so it prompted the bacteria to then release this toxin, which then was absorbed through the vaginal walls and then into the bloodstream. So, and then, you know, the rest is just, like, causing all these issues in the body. But with this, I had a question, because the way Dr. Osterholm explained that, he made it seem that there are already uh, staph bacteria just located in the vagina in the first place. But this bacteria is harmful, at least from my understanding. So I was confused why it's there in the first place. Do you know what I'm saying? I know there's good bacteria and bad bacteria, but why would, like, such a toxic... Or why would a bacteria that's able to produce such a harmful toxin be in your body already? Yeah, it says, okay, I just did a quick search and it says that um, strep or staph can also be present, but usually does not result in an infection. The reason why Rely specifically was really bad um, was because they used this surfactant, which is like, uh, I mean, you can think of it as like soap because what it does is it lowers the surface tension between two liquids so that it's easy for them to mix together or blend. Um, but with this, it actually increased toxin production. That's really scary. You would think that, like, I would understand why they would say, um, change it more often um and this could possibly help with toxic shock syndrome and until i read the text i didn't even realize that uh it was the oxygen that played a big role in toxic shock syndrome i just thought it was the bacteria accumulating over an extended period of time yeah actually that point kind of freaked me out a bit because when i was in like the growing up program during like middle school or i don't even know when um I remember them telling us about this and them specifically saying to avoid this, you should change it every six to eight hours. And I think that's like also common knowledge too, right? As you like grow up, you hear that all the time. But um, after reading this and listening to Dr. Osterholm say that, no, that's actually the completely opposite or wrong advice because 
the more frequently it's changed, the more oxygen is going into the vagina. That's kind of like like scary and also like I I don't know because it seems like super counter counteractive to what we were told growing up. So now I'm kind of like it's not like everyone has just been lying to us. Maybe it's just I don't know. I don't know how to interpret it so that both of them are right. Maybe it's because uh, the way tampons are made has changed. And, like, maybe before we mentioned how they were highly absorbent. So maybe that also factors in somehow. And with those specific ones, you don't need to change it as often. Something like that. But I feel like it still doesn't... Because no matter what, no matter what you're changing, you're still introducing oxygen because you're displacing it. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, that's definitely concerning because now I don't know, like... Have I just been lied to my whole life? <laughs> like, you would think, like, 40 years down the line, we'd have more accurate information. So, something to look into, I feel. Yeah, and maybe you are right. Maybe it's just, like, um, back then, something with the tampons made it so that if you changed it, it's a problem. But now, now there's something where it prevents oxygen from going up there. I don't know. So another mysterious infection that uh, a lot of people were afflicted by in the 1980s was chronic diarrhea. And on July 10, 1984, Dr. Sorensen, who works at Brain Nerd Medical Center, informed Dr. Osterholm there are at least 30 patients who had chronic diarrhea. And there were no... um, explicit cause for this diarrhea, but it had been ongoing for a little bit. Eight of these patients were referred to the Mayo Clinic in the University of Minnesota hospitals, and they were each diagnosed with a variety of different irritable bowel syndromes, nonspecific colitis, because there was nothing to actually diagnose each of these patients. And Initially, there was nothing unusual going on because 30 patients, although it was a large influx for one period of time, it wasn't an insane amount that they could draw conclusions or see that something was up. But um, because Dr. Osterholm is an epidemiologist, he saw that there was like clusters happening of this chronic diarrhea in the town. And so uh, one specific patient whom Dr. Osterholm gives a pseudonym John um, is described to be a 77-year-old man who suddenly got watery diarrhea. He had a couple other symptoms, but nothing too unusual. And uh, for the next month, he had 10 to 20 bowel movements a day. And so he lost more than 20 pounds. And so they did multiple tests and these tests came back negative for the typical cause of infectious diarrhea. Um, so he was hospitalized one of the eight patients to be studied in the Mayo Clinic. And the only thing they found was that his colon was inflamed a little bit. And this was found after a colonoscopy. And even when he was uh, treated with antibiotics, there was no change in his symptoms. So basically, John just had to spend a lot of his time over the next year, um, glued to a bathroom, basically, because he just constantly had to use the bathroom. 
So about 550 days later, mysteriously, started to return back to normal and he was able to um, decrease the frequency and volume of his duels. This is quite interesting. I thought that it would just come and go after 550 days. That's a lot of time. And initially when I read um, 10 to 20 bowel movements, I thought that was per month, but it's per day. So that's insane too. Uh, Dr. Osterholm suspected that it was an infectious microbe that caused this uh, sudden onset of illness in multiple people like John. And so what they did is they made a case definition for this diarrhea of unknown etiology. So what this case definition did is it helped filter what cases actually fell under the specific conditions and what were just other infectious diseases or infectious bacteria that were causing other problems. One of the other symptoms was diarrhea lasting four or more weeks. After studying like all the people who matched the case definition, they realized that they had one uh, prominent thing in common, which was the fact that they all seemed to have consumed raw milk sold by this specific, this local farm, I guess. But um, yeah, so then after they realized that that's probably because there was that in that raw milk, it hadn't been pasteurized. And so it was likely that there was like some kind of pathogen in there that hadn't been pasteurized to get rid of or like sterilize the milk. So then they talked about in 1864, Louis Pasteur, who invented the process of pasteurization and then what pasteurization is, which isn't important to, for us to really get into. But I mean, it's just them killing the bacteria. Uh, also, I thought it was weird how in the 1980s people would be drinking raw milk which is, again, a reason I thought it was in the 1800s. <laughs> no, I think people probably, you can find a, probably a, um, a good population of people who still do the same. Like, if you live on a farm, isn't that like the, I mean, maybe not the best thing for you to do, but it's fastest and cheapest. I feel like you're being like, you know, natural, one with nature. <laughs> and so, you know. My grandma's house, we have cows and... What they do is after they milk the cow, they actually, like, heat it up on their own. Like, pasteurize oh. it. That's good, yeah. Because you really don't know. Yeah. But, you know, um, when I went to my aunt's house in India, she has goats. And she'd, like, get me goat milk. But I don't, like, I feel like it was just straight from the goat. I never got sick, so. I feel like rarely ever do people get sick. I mean, it it seems like they would get sick a lot more because it's, not processed or whatever but if you think about it what did people do before this process like i mean yes there was a lot of disease back then so actually maybe <laughs> it wasn't a good idea but i mean um i don't i feel like it's not a bad idea i was talking to a friend of mine who's vegan and she was like she, she was like she's very against like people drinking milk or like she thinks that's like really nasty um, because, like, she was like, when you think about it, we're the only species that drinks another animal's milk. And she, she wasn't sure about this fact, but she said we might be also the only species that continues to drink milk after, like, we're, um, like, mature. I guess, Not completely mature, but, like, not a baby or a fetus anymore. And we just continue to drink it. Which actually made sense to me, because it's, like, the whole point of it, especially, like, breast milk, is to get, like, um, antibodies through the milk or, like, other like immunization factors right and so um and you just need it also for the nutrients to help you grow 
But then once you stop growing, what's the point of drinking milk, I guess, right? See, I agree with that. And I I actually, like, was looking into that over the summer because I was trying to switch to oat milk and almond milk because um, just from the the nutrients or whatever, it was apparently, like, better than regular milk in some aspects. Um, But they said, like, milk has some specific thing. This could be just, like, them trying to make everybody buy milk. But they were, like, milk has some specific thing that you need for bone density or something and, like, brittle bones and all that. So It does have, I think it's calcium. I think um, it does have a lot of calcium, which is why we're told to drink it as we're growing so our bones can be strong in all that um but also i feel like you could find that somewhere else like there has to be calcium in other things yeah there's calcium in like oat milk and almond milk even more in almond um, oat milk than regular milk or something i feel like we wouldn't even need that much calcium once our bones have been established like firmly established you know what i mean like we don't need to like keep them i mean we have to maintain them but we don't need as much to grow them anymore yeah i think you're right so basically, they couldn't figure out what exactly was in the milk, though, even after doing multiple studies. But they realized that once they did stop selling this milk or basically closed down the ability of this farmer to sell it, um, they realized that the case had stopped. So I guess the main point of this story was just for Dr. Osterholm to tell us that you don't have to, and this is a direct quote, you don't have to have all the answers to have the critical answer. So you don't need to know every single detail. But if you recognize that correlation, you can maybe assume the causation and it's not harming anybody by assuming it and then removing it from the shelves. So it ended up being right too. So he just saved a bunch of lives by doing so. I think it's very commendable how epidemiologists have to assume the unknown in order to draw answers and hope that they're correct. You know, it's like a lot of trust that we have to put in them and a lot of pressure they probably have to take up on themselves to be correct so they don't spread false information. Yeah, and Dr. Osterholm talks about how sometimes that gets them in trouble because a lot of politicians don't want to trust them because, um, you know, they just seem to be making it up as they go, which Dr. Osterholm takes accountability for, but it's also like, how can you not when you need to be making these quick decisions? Like, as... Of society we expect answers from people who are educated in a specific region so when we don't get the quick fix we get worried the next chapter is named the threat matrix and it starts off with a quote from general douglas MacArthur in 1944 like abraham lincoln i'm a firm believer in the people if given the truth they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis the great point is to bring them the real facts yeah, and I guess this sets the tone for the rest of the chapter because basically what he talked about was um, the different threats we have in our society and how we can go about preventing them or responding to them. So long as we believe that it's an actual threat and that we need to take care of them or prevent them. Um, and, you know, so we're, if we're given these real facts, then we can accomplish or um, tackle anything. When we're given the facts, but we don't act on it as a society, that's when the problems arise, as seen in COVID-19. So the threat matrix itself is just a graph that epidemiologists use in order to judge, um, I guess it measures impact risk versus emergence risk. 
and then also severity versus preparedness. So again, that's just, I mean, we won't get into details, but basically it's just another way of him saying how um, all these things are factored in to an epidemiologist's job when they're um, working with some new infectious disease that pops up. And so then they rely on statistics. And while that's pretty good, um, not the rest of the world who aren't scientists may not think the same way. And he even says that most people think emotionally, especially about things like disease and death. With that, he just goes into how um, this can affect our responses. With things like 9-11, war, um, it seems that, you know, we, we talked about this before, but how we were able to come together as a country and take care of the threat. But Dr. Osterholm kind of criticizes the ability of the country to come together for something like uh, infectious disease and trying to prevent that. So then he talks about Bill Gates and how he gave a TED Talk in 2015. And he said, quote, if anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious viral virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. A lot of people use this specific quote from Bill Gates as a way to say like he invented or like he brought about this current epidemic that we're going through. But this just shows how these things are predictable. And as a society, there was a chance for us to be prepared, but we chose to overlook it because we didn't realize how much it would impact us. And we reap what we sow. So because we didn't prepare correctly, we are suffering the consequences. And yeah, I also read it like that, where um, it's just another example of how it seemed that so many people saw this coming. And yet no one was able to convince anyone like politicians or even the public that it was a great threat. It seems that it's not even just scientists who are able to predict problems that will occur in their own respective fields. But um, Dr. Olshaker, who is the author for this book, he also happened to research a lot of... uh, weather events so like hurricanes tornadoes and monsoons and he was talking to someone who who is an expert in the field of meteorology and basically they asked him what would be the worst nightmare for the country or the world regarding like some meteorology issue and so he predicted it he said that's easy category five hurricane direct hit on new orleans and what do you know so he asked that in 1990 or in the 90s and if, what do you know, in 2005, August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. And even though when it hit, it was a Category 3 storm, it still managed to kill 1,577 people in Louisiana alone, displace many thousands more, and completely disrupt the life of that great American city in the process of becoming the costliest natural disaster in American history. And it just goes to show, again, no one had prepared for this disaster, even though they knew that it was coming. So as Dr. Osterholm says, it's just one missed opportunity after another. And we really need to, need to just start listening to if people are predicting these things and they're predicting correctly, there has to come a certain point where we're like, OK, we should probably listen so we can just save lives, money, everything in the future. I agree with you. I think uh, a lot of people take it on themselves to 
research on their own, but they failed to understand that there are people who are highly educated in a specific field who know far more. And so sometimes it's better just to listen to what you're told rather than do your own research. Even though I understand their incentive, like they want to derive their own answers, but you know, it's not always the best method. Yeah, especially when there are a lot more people more qualified who went to school for years and are very experienced. I mean, it seems kind of obvious to trust them. Okay, and then it talks about the four events that uh, have the power to affect the entire planet. The first thing is nuclear war. And so basically, this isn't really in, I mean, it is in our control, but it's also a matter of politics. Um, the second thing is an asteroid strike. That's not in our control. If we were to hear about it right beforehand, there's not much we could do. Um, the third one is global climate change. And this is from the greenhouse gas that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And this is a worldwide crisis, and it'll take decades for it to unfold. There's a lot we can do to um, minimize the impact. And the fourth one is infectious disease. And this one, he says, has the greatest potential of the four events, and it would give rise to a pandemic or a worldwide epidemic. And so what he says about this is that a pandemic hits many places simultaneously, so all of them need emergency assistance. Um, whereas, like, if one, if, like, a hurricane hits its one place and a lot of resources from other places can be allocated there, so that place can be, um, brought back quicker, like, it can be aided quicker, but with a pandemic, which hits multiple places, everyone needs help, and it's not like everyone has spare supplies or extra supplies to lend out, especially when there isn't planning. And this specific quote from... The text really stuck out to me. There is a naive belief that the kinds of supplies we need to respond to a pandemic, such as medical products, drugs, vaccines, and N95 respirators, commonly known as face masks, will be a click away on the internet. Not so. How fitting is this for like what we're going through right now? Because um, in March, when this uh, pandemic really started in the U.S., even though it was here since January, maybe even December, um, we thought maybe we would just like get masks and everything would be okay. But then we started running out of supplies. We didn't have enough N95s for the people on the front lines. And it wasn't like we could just order them and they'd come in because it was a worldwide shortage. And so people were making makeshift masks out of like, I saw really like insane things that they were making masks out of. Just shows how like unpreparedness can be a deadly killer yeah and also i thought what was even crazier was a sentence that followed like two sentences afterwards where uh they said when a rolling global pandemic takes its toll on the working population of a city in asia for example the products and supplies that come from that city perhaps nowhere else that we need to respond to a rapidly growing pandemic will not be available and what do you know again so basically china makes like a bunch i don't know the exact percentage but we know that they make so many of the products we use in the u.s or probably worldwide probably face masks included and i think i heard this or read this somewhere else because they did make face masks or a majority of everything and when we needed face masks we didn't have them because all the face masks that they did make were being used to treat china first 
So that's why, again, we just got kind of screwed in that. And it brings about the question, why didn't the U.S. like take it on themselves to make their own mask? Like if we, you know, like we said before multiple times, if we saw and if multiple people who were qualified predicted something like this would happen, why didn't we have the supplies to make our own masks or make our own PPE for our frontline workers? Yeah, it's just crazy how no one was properly informed. And then he goes on to talk about Ebola and SARS for, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, how there was a SARS, like the original SARS in the 2003. And this is what we're experiencing right now is SARS-CoV-2. So you can think of it as like the second version. I just thought it was interesting how those things were contained and somehow SARS-CoV-2 was not. I feel like that's a question probably for a virologist or someone or an epidemiologist, someone who knows the field better. But I would really love to know, like, how this got so out of hand. Like, was it something specifically with this virus? And while that could be the case, why was SARS part one able to be controlled then? You know how there's antigenic drifts and shifts? I just know drift is from uh, when it's mutating within itself. And then shift is when you have multiple strains coming together to formulate something new. So antigenic shifts are the ones that can cause a pandemic um, because the immune system has a hard time recognizing the influenza strain. And we don't know which one the coronavirus is going through. But I mean, this would make sense since we are in the middle of a pandemic that uh, it's like slowly mutating so that our human immune system can't recognize it which could be why the version two is harder to contain. I feel like also a lot of other viruses just aren't detected by our immune system. Maybe they're detected better, but I feel like they're still undetectable for a certain period of time. And still, while that probably helps in us being so harmed, I think it's more an issue of spread. And that's like what we need to figure out in order to contain it. So then why was why was the spread of, SARS-CoV-2 much worse than the spread of SARS. Yeah, I think that's like something we have to like look into. I feel like there's no definite research or definite answer to anything yet because this is so novel. Yeah, hopefully we can figure it out before this happens again. Controlling and responding to a pandemic or any infectious disease before it becomes a crisis properly might seem like very hard to do but there are four orders of priority that we can follow in order to make sure we manage it well the first priority is to um, deal with the microbes that cause the pandemic right away and like target them so that they don't become our deadliest enemy like the title of the book says so the first of the two microbial threats mentioned is influenza which is the respiratory transmitted infection. And this could um, be spread in a short amount of time with lethal force, according to Dr. Osterholm. And there's also the threat of antimicrobial resistance with um, influenza. And he talks about the post-antibiotic era where we would be living in a world like our great-grandparents because antibiotics won't work, so we just have to see who survives survive survive of the fittest in the scenario which would be really scary because 
as a society, we're just so used to having antibiotics to fix any infection that we come across. The second priority is the high impact regional outbreak, like um, Ebola, coronavirus infections, including MERS, and maybe even the return of SARS and Zika um, or other mosquito-borne diseases. Yeah, I think especially the um, line where he talked about how infectious diseases could once again become untreatable because of antibiotic resistance. I thought that was insane. Like, it's so hard to imagine living in a world like that. That feels so like, I mean, obviously it feels backwards, but it also feels weirdly like apocalyptic almost. Like, that's how I imagine it. You get like, I don't know, maybe strep throat, right? And you think that while that is probably painful, you just go to the doctor, he takes a swab, he realizes what it is, he gives you antibiotics for it. But imagine those antibiotics don't work. And then imagine dying from something like that. Like, I feel like if more people were informed about things like this, and I know as science majors, uh, we are informed, or maybe bio specifically, we are informed. But I feel like society needs to do a better job of informing uh, people who aren't very familiar with science of how these things are possible and how these things could kill us. That's the only way we're going to get a global effort into preventing this. Yeah, I think like the general population needs to be informed about antibiotic resistance because um, first, doctors overprescribe it, and second, I feel like we overuse it. My parents have been always very careful about not letting us take antibiotics if it's not that serious, and we look for other remedies. And I, I'm not saying everybody should do that because everybody responds differently, but like I feel like there shouldn't be such a big emphasis on always going to antibiotics first when there are a lot of other um, alternative methods of treatment. Yeah, or in general, I think the issue is that when doctors are unsure if something may be caused by a virus or if it's caused by bacteria, they'll just resort to prescribing antibiotics and make that assumption because it's the easiest thing to do. But, you know, I think that that assumption could actually be more dangerous because if it's a virus, then it's not going to work, the antibiotics. And really, the only thing to do is just wait it out. Uh, going back to the priorities, so the third priority is to prevent the use of microbes for intentional harm. So this would be like bioterrorism, which again is also something super scary to think of because this is pretty possible, I guess, when you think about it. And I don't really know. I mean, he does mention this organization, DURC, that is in charge of I guess, working to prevent this. But I would hate for it to be like a 9-11 situation where something like a terroristic attack and then uh, all of a sudden the Homeland Security Department is formed. But, you know, it's kind of like that should have been formed beforehand. So just like in this case, we should be prepared beforehand, I guess, is the main idea. Then the fourth priority is to prevent endemic diseases. So this would be like AIDS or things that uh, malaria, like things that are constantly now present in our society once they popped up in the first place. And obviously this is like a huge issue because if you can't get rid of something deadly like this and you caused it to pop up in the first place, like what do you do now? Like there's no vaccine. Yes, there's a good treatment for AIDS, but I don't know. We talked about this more last episode, but again, just crazy how now it's just here to stay. And I don't know, the damage has been done. Like you said before, I feel like that would be apocalyptic. Yeah, and then I guess the last line he leaves us with is that if we approach science without policy, we'll re- we will accomplish nothing. If we try to institute policy without good science behind it, we will squander. 
precious time, money, and lives. So if there's anything this pandemic has taught us, I think it's that how us as scientists or people of science, people of politics, um, we really need to work together. Like in general, society is for us to rely on others because without others, we can't accomplish things and get things done. So I agree. I feel like um, that line perfectly says how we should be focused on policies with like actual good science behind it because a lot like just looking right now there's a lot of rules and regulations that don't necessarily align with um what people like Dr. Fauci are saying and so what's been happening is that we are losing time we are losing money and we are losing a lot of lives to COVID-19 so a lot of things to think about all right I think this was a good episode Yeah, I agree. I feel like we learned a lot and it was very interesting. Yeah, a lot of connections to today's world, which is nice to, I guess, get more information about. All right, guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.